How's everybody doing today? Good? Heard there's some frozen pipes and some ice and uh, hopefully uh, you're not too cold. Uh, we continue this morning our study of the Magi and as you saw up there they go by many names but you know them as like the three royal looking guys who are hanging out in the nativity scenes that you have at your house and, and, and when you see them around. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at their story and we're trying to grasp really what the, the real value in Christmas is and how we can actually celebrate that value. And uh, last week we saw these great things about Jesus, uh, that He is the promised one who came to set everything right in the whole world. We saw that He is the Savior, the one who forgives people of their sins. And we saw that He is God with us. And, and we kind of left it with a question last week. And if it's, it's this, if, if Jesus is really those things... I mean, if He is the promised one, Savior God, then why do even the strongest, most focused Christians have trouble making Christmas about Him? And, and we offered, I offered two things. Maybe one, we don't really know His value. We don't understand the value of a, of a God come to us. Or, and I offered another idea, and that was maybe that we don't know how to make Christmas really about Jesus. We just don't know what that looks like. I mean, we know how to make Christmas about presents. We buy them. We know how to make Christmas about decorating. We decorate. We know how to make Christmas about food. We eat. We bake. We do all of those things. But how do you really make Christmas about a baby that was born over 2,000 years ago and died 30-ish years later and hasn't lived in a physical sense on our planet ever since. That's much more difficult. And so today we begin to look at, at really the Magi uh, and we're going we're gonna to see some things this morning, specifically one thing that really shows us what makes Jesus important and worthy of being served and worthy of being thought about at Christmas and one way in which we can do that. Uh, I'll just read you the whole passage that we'll look at today and then we'll, we'll break it back down into little segments. Matthew 2. 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the first part that's important here says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's the key word there, Bethlehem in Judea. Next week we're going to talk a lot about the importance of Bethlehem and, and why it's a big deal that Jesus was born there and the prophecies that it fulfilled. Uh, but this morning it's important just to say one thing about that and that is that once again Matthew is really emphasizing what is the major emphasis of his book and especially kind of the first two chapters and that is that Jesus really actually is the Messiah. Remember we talked about this last week. The Jewish people were looking forward to somebody who would come and he would set things right for the Jewish people in the whole world. And it's interesting because during the times between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew and the English Bible, we see that during that period, the idea of the Messiah really escalated. It really became uh, something that God had not said. And really what they thought by the time Jesus was born is that the Messiah would start this military revolution and he would take over the Romans, he'd overthrow them and he'd set up a kingdom right here on earth and it would expand and the Jewish people would once again be raised to prominence throughout the world. And Jesus didn't do any of those things. And now there's a group of guys saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a large group of people saying, well, that can't be true. 
I mean, if he was the Messiah, then the Romans would be gone, but I'm still paying taxes to Caesar, and I don't really understand how you could make that claim. And so Matthew is writing this book to say to Jewish people, hey, I need you to understand that even though Jesus didn't do the things you thought he was going to do, he actually is the Messiah. And one of the ways that's really important for him to explain that is to say that Jesus is in the lineage of David. And we talked about this last week. David... It was known, his, his line, his family, his heritage would have this promised one. And so in the genealogy, Matthew took careful care to make sure that we understood that Jesus was David's great, 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 whatever, grandson. And here, he's emphasizing it one more time. He's saying, I want you to know, I want you to understand, I want you to grasp a hold of the fact that Jesus is connected to David. And he does this by saying one thing. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the place that the Messiah was to be born, as we'll see next week. But even more, for this passage of Scripture, it was the place in which David was born. And so it's subtle, it's a nuance, but once again, Matthew wants us to hear, wants us to see that Jesus is connected to this guy named David. Now, Let me just make clear something about David. You may not know his whole story, and if you don't, you can go listen to some of his story in our last sermon series. If you go to creeksidebiblechurch.org backslash stories of old, you can hear about kind of the rise of David into power and and, uh, him defeating a, a giant named Goliath specifically. But what you need to understand is that David was the epitome of kings for the Jewish people. During his time, the nation was blessed, and they blessed and honored God. And so the people looked forward to somebody who would be like him, and right at the beginning, if you're Jewish and you're reading this, you're like, oh, he's saying that Jesus was born in the same place that David was born. I wonder if the rest of the story is going to show that Jesus is like David in other ways. And that's what the people would have thought. Now, the next thing we read is during the time of King Herod. And here's the really interesting part of Matthew's book to me. And just the whole kind of gospel record. And it's this. That when we think about Jesus, and, and if we were trying to show Jesus to be something great, or we were telling the story of Jesus, maybe let's say in America, or a contemporary version about what Jesus is doing, I think we would always want to start with like the religious people, right? I mean, especially for Matthew who's writing to Jewish people who are pretty religious by nature, especially at the time. And Matthew's writing this letter to him. And what I kind of expect is like Jesus was born. Okay, we got that. And then I expect him to turn his attention to like a priest. Or like somebody who has power in the church. Or like somebody who's been praying all of the time. And in the book of Luke, we actually see that that is the case. Luke kind of turns his attention to these very spiritual people. But Matthew instead says, during the time of King Herod. I'm going to make a statement here. I'm not making it lightly. It's something you need to understand. Herod is one of the worst people to ever live. Ever. Herod is one of the worst people ever to live. Now, I, I, it's true that he uh, was the ruler 
of the Jewish people. And I, uh, it's important to understand just how he got that power and how he kept that power really to understand who he was. He was born in about 74 B.C. And he was appointed governor of Galilee, which is a province in the Israel area, right? And he was appointed that at the age of 25. But the area of Israel was taken from Roman rule during his reign. And so Herod marches over to Rome and he he looks at the people and he's like, Look, I want to be restored to power. I want you to put me back into my place. And so the Romans say, Okay, here's what we'll do. We are going to call you, this is really key, King of the Jews. You are now King of the Jews. So we want you to go back over to the Jerusalem area, to the Palestine area, and we want you to take that area back over so Herod with this newfound I don't know sense of value sense of self-worth arrogance probably he marches back and and he's able to in about a two-year period to take Palestine the Israelite area back for the Roman people and he begins his reign and it's a reign that is brutal in every way let me just give you a couple of things that kind of show it to be what it is Uh, he married his teenage niece For political purposes, she was Jewish. He wanted to gain Jewish favor. So he marries this teenager. And he was already married. And so what does he do? He just dismisses completely. He banishes his wife and his first son. Just gets rid of them totally. Three years later... When Israel is won back, he takes over as king. And then this is what we see him doing. We see him murdering his rivals every single time. We see him punishing people harshly throughout his reign. We see, really, history tells us this, that he tortured his son's friends in order to find out if his friends were, or if his sons were plotting against him to try to take the throne, to take the crown, to become king of the Jews. I don't know who would be friends with his sons after the first time that happens. That's my question. The second friend, you know you have real friends if they're willing to be your friends at that point. Uh, He had two of his sons by his favorite wife killed, strangled to death because he thought maybe that they were going to conspire against him. And so he just said, kill them. And and just the fact that he had them strangled, that's what history tells us, kind of shows his character. I mean, could have killed them in a myriad of ways, but he chooses to have them killed in one of the worst ways that I can think to die. And, and check this out. This, history tells us, this is unbelievable. History tells us that when he knew he was going to die, which is just shortly after the birth of Jesus, really, uh, he knew that people were going to celebrate. And so he took a bunch of religious leaders in the Jerusalem area and he ordered that upon his death, at the same moment that he died, they were to be executed. Because he wanted to make sure, this is a true story, this isn't like, if you don't believe the Bible or anything, this isn't even in the Bible, this is just history. He wanted to make sure that people did not celebrate his death, but rather mourned when he died. And so he had these religious leaders killed at the moment of his death to make sure that people around the city were crying. That's a pretty terrible person, right? And what we'll read in the story next week, we'll talk about in the story next week, shows his character even further. He has every two-year-old in a, in a whole area killed. Everybody under two. Uh, totally wiped out. We see that this is like, a horrible, horrible person. And, and you also see, especially because he has labeled himself king of the Jews and worked so hard to maintain his own little kingdom, 
that, that Matthew wants us to see the dichotomy. He wants us to see the difference. He wants us to see kind of the polarization of, of this man, Herod, horrible person, and this baby who is now born the real king of the Jews. And this, the second people we meet in this story, it's, it's perhaps crazier. It says that Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. If you were looking for religious people, at least like people that worship the real God, the God that we believe in the Bible, then again, this is not it. I mean, this is not the people that you expect. Again, I expect like a priest. I expect, you know, some person that's been praying for the last 30 years looking for the Messiah. But instead, we are introduced to a group of people, the group of people who's really driving our sermon series. And here they refer to as the Magi. Now, not a lot is known about them. They are, in fact, and this is one of the reasons I love them and it's going to be so fun these next three weeks to look at them together. They are actually one of the most mysterious groups of people that the world has ever known. And, and they kind of come on the scene and, and we have them for about 12 verses and we meet them and they have like this really big role kind of in the Christmas story and they're in all of your nativities. But really, we don't know much about them. We can make some very educated guesses, but not a lot is known. Uh, well, one thing that, that history tells us, and I, I just, this is funny, uh, but history has given us their names, and this is probably not accurate, so don't run around telling everybody you know the names of the wise men, uh, but it's fun to talk about to me. Their names are Melchior, Casper, and Balthazar. And that really has no bearing to this story. It doesn't help us any, and it's probably not true. However, it is fun if you have a nativity set at home. This is what I've found entertaining in the last few days. To say, which one is which? Because you always kind of have the one who's on his knees, right? And sometimes you have one on the camel still, and then you got a really tall guy every single time. And you see that in our design for this series. And, and there's always like the tall one, and there's like the holy one, and then there's the other guy. I don't know if he's late or whatever. And so I want you to go home, and, and this is this is part of your homework from this sermon. I want you to pick out who is Melquer, who is Casper, and who is Balthazar, alright? Can you do that? Raise your hand if you'll do that for me. If you don't have a nativity set, shame on you. I am in love with nativity sets. We would have one on every single little area of our house. Uh, but my wife doesn't like them as much as me. So that doesn't happen. And so uh, so we got a guess. Somebody actually claimed a few centuries after Jesus was born to have found their skulls. And I'm sure that you can go see them if you travel over to Europe. But we don't really know that either. And, and let me give you the real kind of guesses about who these guys are. This is what we can think. They probably were a priestly caste in the Persian area, uh, Persia to Babylon, somewhere in that region of the world. And they were probably followers of Zoroaster, who was the founder of Zoroastrianism, if you've ever heard of that religion. Not one of the biggest religions in the world, for sure, but a religion that still has a following today. And so this group of people probably came from Zoroaster, this guy, and they followed him, and they liked his teachings, but not long after he lived and started this religion, uh, what began to happen to Zoroastrianism and with these men who had followed him is that some Babylonian kind of ideas and thoughts started to really seep into their understanding of the world and into their religious views. And so we see that there's this group of people who, who, who kind of follow Zoroaster, who taught kind of a 
a good versus evil religion. And they start to add kind of all of these different um, sides of knowledge to this religion, such as uh, astrology, demonology, wisdom, and magic. These people were leading figures in the religious world and, and it even went so far as to, uh, that they would determine like who the king should marry and they would make recommendations about that. And so they are royals by every, uh, by every meaning of that word. This is like a high up group who, who is ruling over people and has tons of respect from, from the people that, that they live and kind of rule over. And so this is the Magi, is this group of people who's well trained, very, very, very intelligent. In fact, their intelligence probably would have been kind of at the center uh, of the Eastern world at the time, and they would have been the ones teaching people about the stars, maybe navigation. They would have been teaching people about religion, not the right religion. And, and they really would have been the people, kind of, if you're looking to get smarter, then you go and you meet this group of people who, who are called the Magi. Now, the other part of this that you need to understand is that, uh, or that you might want to ask even, is, well, how did these people who have a different religion, how did they know to be looking for a king that would be born of the Jews? And there's really three answers to this. And so you have these guys sitting in Persia and Babylon, and one, one of the simple answers is that the, at the time of Jesus' birth, the idea of the Messiah had spread all over the world. Okay, and so that's a really an important under thing to, uh, to, to uh, grasp. And so people all over, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, not just the religious people who followed the Bible, but people all over the world kind of had an idea that maybe there was going to be a king who would be born in or, in or around Judea and he was going to start kind of a revolution. He'd kind of take over the world, if you would. He would be a big, big deal internationally. And so part of the reason that these magi, these smart guys, were, were kind of looking into the sky and saying maybe this king is coming is simply because there was a rumor floating around that a king of the Jews was going to come and he was going to be a really big deal. Now the second part of that is that many of the people... In Babylon, the Jewish people had not actually returned home. And if you were to go back and, and you could listen to our sermon series and kind of trace with the history of, of the Jews, or if you were to go back and read the Old Testament, what you find is the Jewish people at a couple points in their history actually were sent into exile. That means they were taken over by different people, not their own people, because God had turned His back on them because they had been sinning and turning their back on him. And so one of those times, what took place, is that the Jewish people were taken into exile. They were taken over by the Babylonians. And we know from history that many of the Jewish people did not travel back to Israel when the Jews were set free. And so in the midst of kind of the east, there were lots of pockets of Jewish people and they had some knowledge of the scriptures. And so it wasn't like these people out in the east had no idea about Hebrew scriptures and what they taught or what they might understand. But instead, these magi probably would have had copies of what we call the Old Testament. And they would have understood them, and, and maybe not in a religious sense even, maybe just a knowledge sense. They would have looked and they would have dove into it and tried to understand better science from it and understand health and things like that. And so these guys had a copy of our Old Testament and they probably had seen things such as Numbers twenty four seventeen that says this, 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheth. And so these magi probably had read this. And they're like, we better look at the stars because it seems, it seems that this ruler, this kind of, there's a rumor floating around about him coming. It seems like maybe a star is going to lead us to him. Now this other thing that's important about them is that we see in the book of Daniel something we just talked about a couple of weeks ago. That Daniel, one of the strongest people of faith in the entire Bible, a Jew, was actually head over the wise men, the Babylonian wise men, when he was alive on earth. Listen to what Daniel 2.48 says. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. You see, Daniel was the head of a sect just like the people we are now encountering. And while it's many generations later, we can't help but think that his influence had trickled down as these people try to learn and try to grow. And if you were to keep reading in the book of Daniel, after where we stopped last week, what you find is that Daniel is a book of prophecy. You see, we looked at the first six chapters, really the action chapters of the book of Daniel. And we saw some lions and how God protected Daniel from the lions. And we saw a burning furnace and three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into it. And God saved them. And there's all this action. It's crazy. But then in chapter 7, right after that, Daniel gets a prophecy from God. And what's really fascinating about that prophecy, if you were to read through it, is that Daniel through God, predicts down to almost the very day when the Messiah will come to earth. And I have to believe that as Daniel's writing down this revelation from God, some of the wise men might have popped in. You know, I mean, some of these magi in Babylon might have popped in and said, Daniel, what are you writing? And I'm pretty sure, given the character that we see about Daniel in the Bible, that he wasn't like, I can't tell you. I don't, you're, I don't need you to know my God. No big deal. No, I have to think that Daniel would have been like, here, here's, this is what I'm writing down. God has given me a revelation. He has told me that in this many weeks that he's going to send someone who's going to set things right for the whole entire world. I don't know what it all means, but I know the date. Now, these magi are all about learning about studying. And I'm pretty certain, I'm just, just a thought, I mean, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but if somebody told me that was as holy and as spiritual and as connected to God as Daniel, hey, in this many weeks, somebody's going to be born and it's going to change the entire world, that I might jot that down. Might put it into my phone, you know, make a note, do something like that. And I, I'm guessing that these wise men, just think about their name, were wise enough to put it down into writing somewhere. And so when the weeks are up and the day is coming and Jesus is born, these men, because of their connection to Daniel and that passing down through the, through the generations, would have been looking for somebody that was going to change everything. And so these magi, these wise men, 
These three kings, by the way, uh, and that comes from, I forgot to mention this, but you may be wondering, why do we sing about three kings? Psalm 72.11 says, all kings will bow down to him. And this is what we read next. And asked, this is what they ask. This is a big deal. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. I just... Think about the situation. We'll talk a lot about this next week. But they're coming into a town and they're fully expecting, fully expecting that the Jewish people would know where the king of the Jews was born, right? I mean, they are not Jewish. They are Gentiles, right? They are disconnected. They have traveled, as we mentioned in our video, over 900 miles that they're from the Babylonian area. And and they've been traveling for 3.5 months. And they expect to show up on the scene and to say, where's the king of the Jews been born? And they expect, because they are royalty, for somebody to say, oh, he's over there in that palace. And instead, just think about this, they're getting blank stares. You want to know where Herod was born? Herod's the one that calls himself king of the Jews. You want to know where... I don't know where he was born. I I don't know. Go ask Herod. Um, And then, when they start to get... (laughs) That that they are talking about somebody besides Herod... Then they're like, don't ask Herod. I mean, whatever you do, don't ask him this because we know it's going to end badly. And we see in our passage next week that the people are actually scared. And can you imagine, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves today, but can you imagine the anger, rage, passion, craziness of Herod when he hears that these magi are wandering around the city saying, hey, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? I mean, think, this guy kills everybody in his line. Every son he has, he's ready to kill if they want to be king instead of him. And now he hears that somebody has been born king. There's definitely a separation. Matthew wants you to see it. It's very important. And what he wants you to see what is so clear here is that while somebody is making a claim to the the throne of Jesus, there really only is one king of the Jews. And it doesn't matter how hard Herod works, how many people he kills, how difficult he makes everybody's life, how much he grasps for his power, there really only is one true king of the Jews. There really only is one true king of the world. The other part of this verse says that they saw his star when it rose in the east. And we see that these people have been following the star. You know that from the story, right? And uh, there's many different guesses about what this star is. I'll just tell them to you. One is that there's a comet that appeared. And there actually is a comet that appears just around the year of Jesus' birth that people record. But we can't be for certain that it appeared in the same year. Some see it as an alignment of the stars and so they would pick out, or, or planets, and they would pick out stars and say, well, the, the Magi, they would have understood this star to be Israel and this star to mean king and so they would have followed it to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. And, and some people, and I am one of them, see this as a supernatural occurrence. There was some star that God supernaturally put out there for these Magi to see so that they could be led to the king. And, and the part about that that makes me believe that is it first leads them to Jerusalem and then later we see that it leads them to Bethlehem and literally stops right over 
the house of Mary and Joseph and comments don't usually stop and, and it just doesn't make much sense. And, and, and so no matter how you see this, you need to understand that supernaturally, God has led these people to Jesus, no matter how you see that star, in order that they, and this is what we read next, can come to worship Him. This word worship can simply mean to bow down in front, in front of somebody. It can be used from a person to a person about respect. Uh, and that is how it's used sometime in Scripture. But the truth is it's not used that way ever in Scripture. And given that Matthew has a very high Christology, that means kind of view of Christ and who He is, Jesus. Given His high view of Jesus, it's hard to think that He is saying these people have come simply so that they can bow down and offer Him a little bit of respect. It seems that Matthew is saying that, that, that these people have come to worship Jesus in like a spiritual how we talk about worship sense in the church today. The word actually was a, a word that, that started for the Greek people because the Greek people would bow down and they would kiss the ground when they thought a Greek God was present with them. And so the idea of bowing down can be seen in that. And, and it became over time kind of a word for an internal uh, an internal attitude towards somebody. And here I think that what Matthew's saying is that these people have come because they are recognizing in him something that is not normal. It's not a regular king. But something that's like a deity in Jesus. And they've come to worship him in every sense of that word. And, and another way that I know that is because the next time that this word is used in the book of Matthew is Matthew 4, 8-10. through 10, And this is uh, Jesus out in the wilderness. And he's fighting the temptation of the devil. And this is what we read. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now here's, here's the thing. I think that, that these people have come to worship in every sense of the word. When we sing our songs and, and we talk about Jesus being holy and mighty and great and the Savior of the world, I think that these magi have come to worship God. In every sense of that word. And here's the, here's the really interesting. This is the, really the key to this part of this story. The, the, the thing that I think we need to latch a hold of. And, and we need to grasp if we're going to truly worship Jesus. If we are going to, to really uh, have him at the center of our Christmas this year. And, and that first of all is this. The things that we read about. The things that we have heard about. It doesn't make it any less important than the things that we can actually see. and It's very interesting because in our world, people always want something that they can see and they can grasp a hold of and they can kind of look at and feel and, and they can use their senses to understand. And, and for these guys, these magi, Jesus was none of those things when they started their trek. Instead, all they had to go on was some scripture and some knowledge based on what they had heard and an idea that this person was going to be pretty special because of what they had seen in the sky. And it would have been easy for them to say, well, that star can mean anything. I have a lot going on here. I have some things that I have to do. I mean, we're kind of a big deal over here in this nation. I'm not going to get on a camel for three and a half months and go over there. And I think for us, whether we like to admit it or not, there's some of that that goes on inside of us. I mean, we can, we can look at family and we can hang out with family and, and we can know, hey, if I don't spend time with that person during Christmas, they're going to be mad at me. 
And we can also, you know, take a hold of the presents that we get and feel them and touch them and use them and, and like them and enjoy them. And, and we can taste the food right and savor it and, and really have a good time eating. But when it comes to Jesus, even I think the strongest Christians are like, well, somewhere deep in you probably, well, it's just something I can read about. And somewhere inside of us, that makes Jesus a less big deal at the Christmas season. He's not the thing that we can touch and see and taste and smell. He's just something that we can read about. But for these magi, reading about it was good enough to make them do something different for their Christmas celebration. And I think he goes back all the way to Daniel again. Because if you look at the story of Daniel, it's really, really cool. Because Daniel is sitting there one day and he's reading the Word of God. And he reads it and it says that the exile will end soon. And all of a sudden Daniel is like, hey, we got to be prepared for when God sets us free from the Babylonian people. Based simply on what he had read. And I think that that has been passed down to these men. And so the first thing in this small portion of this story that you need to grasp is when you read Scripture... You need to not dismiss it and say, yeah, yeah, so Jesus came, He's Savior, He's God, Messiah. Show me something I can really see. I mean, I, give me the Christmas tree over here. You know, that's something that I can really value. But the Magi, based on story, based on history, based on Scripture, they value Jesus. Now, the other part of this that's so important is they don't just value nothing about Jesus, but they value Him as, this is really key, King. I think that one of the main reasons that we don't make Christmas about Jesus is because something else rules our hearts. I mean, we may believe that Jesus is Savior and He's God, and sometimes that prevents us from making Him King. We go, well, (sighs) Jesus will forgive me if I don't spend some time with Him, but Aunt Betty won't. You know, I mean, and so Jesus... I'm going to have to make Christmas about my family, you know? You know, that's kind of true, right? And so we look at Jesus as this this baby who came to save, and it was really nice of Him, and He's going to set things right. But that does not demand anything from you. And these people, only because of what they read in Scripture, they show up on the scene, not saying, hey, where's that one who's going to save me from my sins? Not saying, hey, we heard God was born. Not saying, hey, I need somebody to set some things right in my life, but saying we know that the real king of the East, the real king of the world, the one who deserves our our time, the one who deserves our worship, we know that he has been born. What's really cool to me about this is that it's so kind of reminiscent of of Christianity today. And, And what happens is you see Christians kind of act like Jesus isn't king. Kind of like the people living in Jerusalem, right? I mean, eh, whatever, whatever, whatever. But when you see somebody new grasp it for the first time, like, man, this guy that's written about in the Bible, this one that that we call Jesus, this guy deserves all of my respect. He deserves all of my life. He deserves all of my worship. He deserves all of me, not just because he's my Savior, but because he is the ruler of the entire world. And to be totally honest with you, I think that we neglect more than any other aspect of who Jesus was, we neglect this. I mean, we talk about Jesus being loving, right? I mean, we we love to latch on to that, and He is. He's totally loving. He's all loving. 
We love to think about how Jesus forgives me for my sins. We love to think about how Jesus will take us to be in heaven someday and how he died for us. But we don't really like to think that Jesus is the only one who deserves to rule over us because he is the true king. And you will go through, I promise, I promise that you will go through this Christmas season making Jesus second if you don't look inside your heart and decide that this Christmas you're going to make Jesus the only one, you're going to recognize Jesus as the only one who should sit on the throne of your heart. Because there are a lot of things competing for that. And, and the sad reality is even more things compete for control right now, right? I mean, there's so many things that will compete for your control during Christmas. And if you're like, yeah, Jesus is awesome and He saves me, then you'll let those other things control. Because then Jesus is just this pacifist who's never going to demand any respect from you. But if you look and you say, He is the real King, then maybe you'll start to remove some of those things that have taken control of your life and you will make Jesus king. Now the other, the other really important part of this, and this is, this is just something that we really need to understand, and this is, this is going to be your homework, this is, besides naming your, your wise men and your nativity scene, this is your other, the more important part of your homework, but I would like you to do both. These men, just think about this, they give up so much time to be present with Jesus. I mean, they want to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we don't see them go buy everybody presents. We don't see them start singing Christmas songs. They don't go, Hey, King of the Jews was born over there in Israel somewhere. Let's put some lights on the palace. Let's spend our time that way. What they do is they say, the king of the Jews was born. Let's give up the next three and a half months of our lives. Let's travel 900 miles. Why? Why? To be where he is. And I'm telling you one of the greatest missing things during the Christmas season is us actively seeking to be with Jesus. Now you know that I, if you're around this church, if you're part of this church, if you've been here, you know that I think Jesus is most actively, most powerfully present with us when we gather as a church. And that is important for you to be here, but since I don't want to preach to the choir, I would add this, and this is really what I think we need to do if we're going to celebrate Jesus. Jesus wants to meet with us. And some of you, the truth is, I know, and you probably feel guilty saying this out loud if you call yourself a Christian, but you never spend time with Him. You never like go home, get alone, put away everything, get on your knees and say, hey God, I'm here right now. I'm reading your word, talking to you, I'm hoping you talk to me. Some of you absolutely never do that. And the truth is that some of you who do that, it actually lessens during the holiday season. You're like, hey Jesus, I know we usually spend a lot of time together, but we're trying to celebrate your birth this month, so I am not going to be able to hang out quite as much. I'll get back to you in January when everything slows down. We kind of see that because church shrinks during the month of December, and that's not just our church, but that's kind of nationally. People are like, gotta celebrate Jesus' birth. See you guys next year. We're done. And it's a real shame. 
my wife and I, we, we take our time together on Saturdays very seriously um, because we don't have very much time to spend together, honestly, uh, just the way our schedules work. And, uh, and some nights during the week we, we get to hang out, but a lot of times those are filled up. And so uh, every single Saturday, we, I mean, I fight for it. It is like something that, that I just don't want to give up for anything in the world. But sometimes things come up and, and we miss that Saturday time together for whatever reason it might be. But, but let me tell you what I would never do. I would never schedule something on Bryn's birthday and say, hey, something just came up. I mean, really, one of you would have to be dying for me to say, oh, Bryn, I know it's your birthday, uh, but I can't spend time with you right now. And it's because, you know why? It's because I value her. It's because I understand that she's important. It's because in some way I've let her have rule over my life more than you because I care about her and I know she deserves that respect in the position that she's in as my wife. None of you are that besides her. And so I would, ne- I just can't imagine that moment and how upset she would be and how frustrated she'd be. And if I was like, you know what? Sorry. I was going to say Blazer game, but she was born in June. I'm glad I remembered that part. Um... Hey, there's a Mariners game on tonight. Can't really hang out. I'm celebrating your birthday by watching it. It's what really sounded fun to me. I mean, just picture that. And that's what we do with Jesus. It's like, look, I know that this is your celebration, and, and even I grasp that you are king, but no biggie. I'm going to just hang out with everybody else. I'm going to take time to decorate. I'm going to take time to bake. And I, I say that about my wife, but picture like if a king, if a king, it's hard for us to imagine in America because we don't really understand, but a king, let's say a king says, hey, I'm inviting you to my birthday party. And you're like, I'm busy. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get to it maybe. If I, if I have time, I'll show up a little late. You know, no, like, those were, that words, that just wouldn't happen. And yet we look at the king of the world the one who came to set everything right. And not just a king like... he's It's not like a mean king. It's like a king that later is going to give his life for you. And we just dismiss it like, I'll find time for you if I can. And so here's the thing that I need you to understand and what these magi teach us. First of all, if you are going to make this Christmas about Jesus, then you need to recognize Jesus not just as somebody who saves you, but somebody who rules over you. The king of the world. And if you don't grasp that, then everything else will rule your life this December. And the second thing that you need to understand, this is very practical, is if you want to make this Christmas about Jesus, you're looking at Jesus as King, then you need to make time for Him. My encouragement to you is this. My encouragement to you is to set aside a block of time. You can do this with family. You can do this with friends. But a block of time that you do not normally set aside. I'm not talking your five minutes of, of devotion in the morning. I'm talking something else. And I want you to say, Jesus, I'm giving you this time. And I don't know what it will look like for you. Maybe you'll put on some nice Christian Christmas music and you'll sing right along and celebrate with Jesus. Maybe you'll just spend time praying, saying, Jesus, I'm glad you were born. Maybe you'll spend time reading the Christmas story. But I want you... To make a commitment. To say, I'm going to give you my time, Lord. I'm not going to treat you as something second nature, something unimportant, something that I'll get to if I can later in life. What I want you to do is I want you to just give your time to Jesus. Not just church, 
But just say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my time. Because you are the real king. These guys gave up 3.5 months. And they probably were a bigger deal than you. <laughs> they probably had like more going on than you. And they said, I, I have nothing more important than this. Because the king has been born. And so will you, will you please, will you make a commitment this December? And we're going to have many things that are practical about these magi and the way that they show us who Jesus is, but, but even how we can celebrate that. And this week they show us that if we're really going to celebrate Jesus this Christmas, if we're really going to live out the cliches that we're posting on Facebook, Jesus is the reason for the season, keep Christ in Christmas, then it has to be more about a cliche. It has to be us saying, I will give time to you. And so I'm asking you to set aside a chunk of time. Maybe even an hour. Can you do an hour? Set aside an hour and say, Jesus, this is yours. I'm focused on you. I'm thinking about you. If I forget to think about you for a minute and I start thinking about what I have to do next, please forgive me. But this time is just simply set apart for you because I love you and I'm excited that you were born in order to be my Savior, my King, and God that has come to be with us. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that that we would make you king of our hearts. And Lord, I know there's people here right now who have never even like made you kind of king. They've never even like considered that you deserve their lives. And God, the truth is they, they, they everything else is king of their life. Whether it be their, their boyfriend, whether it be their job, whether it be... Uh, their families, Lord, whether it be the worry and the guilt inside of them, whatever it is, God, they've made something else king. And I, I would pray that this morning, Lord, you just speak to them about how important you are and how you, Lord, really are the ruler of the world. And the only question is whether or not we will be obedient to your rule and make you king of our hearts and i pray you just work in in their lives but god there's there's others of us in this room who are christians and if somebody were to come up to us and say who's king of kings and lord of lords we would quickly without hesitation answer jesus but lord when you look at your lives i'm sure you're you're saying that's not true and i pray that you would change that this morning lord i pray god that you would that you would come into us in a new way, a new powerful way. And Lord, you would convict us if we have made Christmas lights or family or, or decorating or food or parties or presents or anything else king of our lives. And you would just make it so clear to us the things that we need to take off the throne of our hearts and, and the things that we need to remove from our lives so that we, Lord, can just allow you to be our ruler, what you are, whether we declare it or live it out or not, Lord. God, I thank you that you're such a good and awesome king that you don't strike us dead every time we forget your birthday. But you graciously call us back to yourself. And I pray that this morning, once again, Lord, you would graciously call us back to you. And I pray for each of us in this room that we would commit to giving you time this Christmas season, Lord. Not neglecting you, 
Not forgetting about you. Not pushing you to the back burner, Lord. But saying, I'm going to give you my time. I pray we commit to that this morning, Lord. Lord, and when we when we declare that you are the reason for the season, and if somebody were to ask us, well, how have you how have you lived that out? We would be quick to say, well, I've given Jesus lots of time, quality time, good time, because I know He deserves it, and I love I love Him, and all that His birth means. In your name, Amen.